Welcome to a new episode of New Work in Intellectual History. My name is Selma Sonden and I'm a master student of intellectual history at the University of St. Andrews. With me today is Dr. Susan Manley, who is a researcher at the School of English at the University of St. Andrews, and her work is interested in Romantic period Irish and English literature and primarily in the writings published in the 1790s. Today I will be talking to Susan about her current work on a political biography of Mariah Edgeworth, before then getting a glimpse into her upcoming publication on Romantic period writing for and about children. Welcome Susan and thank you for taking the time to speak with me today. You're welcome. Um, Susan, your most recent project is a political biography of Mariah Edgeworth. And before we start talking about the book as such, I believe we should start by briefly covering the most essential question. Who is Mariah Edgeworth? Well, Mariah Edgeworth is an author working in the late 18th century, right through to the mid 19th century. She has, she has a long literary career. Um, she was a prolific writer, um, so she published numerous works from 1795 um, right through to 1848, the year before her death. Um, and her writing career really spans a really interesting and turbulent period um, in politics. Um, so she begins to publish in the midst of the French Revolution and in the midst of a very turbulent decade in Irish politics. Uh, she lives through the United Irish Uprising in 1798 uh, and another failed uprising in 1803. Um, she has friends in Paris and in Switzerland, so she has this kind of very um, rich and interesting milieu and kind of a network of close associates, intellectual contacts um, and friends. Um, and her career was really wide-ranging, uh, responding to uh, all of the kind of political upheavals that she lived through. And I haven't even gone on to kind of talk about the later period with uh, with O'Connell and, and so on. Um, so she's living through and responding to um, these massive upheavals in political and social life. And she produced uh, a kind of very wide-ranging, diverse um, output of writings ranging from writing for children, fiction for children, writing about educating children, um, pamphlets, sort of satirical pamphlets, uh, for instance, writing about women's education and how far women should be given access to public life, um, and then novels set in Ireland and in England, exploring um, Irish social and political life um, and questions to do with, um, for instance, um, colonialism, empire, slavery, um, popular education. Um, so it's a, it's a really kind of sort of um, long and kind of varied kind of writing life and public presence that she has. Um, so she was kind of widely recognised as an outstanding author in the period. And that began really early. So she was recognised as early as 1800. And she's still quite early in her career at that point, but she's already produced an, a number of different works with children's education to do with Irish politics. 
uh, and the other stuff that she's writing that isn't kind of published under her name, uh, which is one of the aspects of her um, her, her her life that interests me interests me most. Um, and um, so by 1800, she's already got a reputation uh, in England, Ireland, and in Europe. And that reputation grew, so she becomes internationally known right across Europe, America, um, and uh, Britain and Ireland. Um, and she was a bestseller. Um, so she was widely read and enjoyed. Um, and um, she outsold Jane Austen massively. Um, we, we often think of Jane Austen is a kind of a really good sort of comparison point, I think, because that's the author that most people would associate with the years in which Edgeworth was writing uh, from the end of, of the 18th century through to the first, mostly the first 20 years of the 19th century is when she's most prolific. Uh, and if we look at who was reading Edgeworth at that period, we find that she had a massive readership. That's fantastic. Thank you. You already touched upon your kind of interest in her um, and looking at your list of research publications, it seems like you're quite the expert on Mariah Edgeworth. Um, expanding on what you touched upon before, what makes her so special for you and your interest uh, and, and how did your research interest develop? Um, well, I, I suppose I'll, I'll start with the second question. How did the, the research interest develop? Um, and it was uh, kind of accidental originally in that my PhD supervisor, Marilyn Butler, uh, when I was writing my, uh, my PhD uh, under her supervision, she was working on a collected edition of Mariah Edgeworth's works. And actually, it's not really a complete edition. She couldn't she couldn't publish everything in that edition that, that Edgeworth wrote because Edgeworth was so prolific. But there are 12 volumes. Um, and um, I ended up working with her on the edition um, once I'd finished my PhD. So I ended up being involved in three of those 12 volumes. Um, and so I was, that was really kind of something to do with just encountering Marilyn Butler and her amazing work on, on Mariah Edgeworth. And she actually wrote a biography of, of Edgeworth which focuses uh, really on her growth as a writer and on the, the kind of uh, what, what goes into the fiction mostly. Um, uh, and my interest grew from there. Um, so I began work on, on Harrington, which is um, Edgeworth's novel about anti-Semitism in 1780s London. Um, and it's really a kind of allegorical novel about uh, religious toleration um, and uh, diversity um, and the kind of enrichment of England um, by the kind of um, contribution made by newcomers. Um, so it's a, it's a highly politicised work and, I, and that really grabbed my interest. Um, and I went on to work on um, Edgeworth's writing about education, early education. That's a book called Practical Education. It's a brilliant book full of anecdotes uh, drawing on real children, children in the Edgeworth family, uh, things they said and did uh, that kind of inform this kind of very um, empirical um, idea about education. So it's very kind of fact, reality based. Uh, it doesn't proceed initially from speculation or theory about children, but from direct experience of working with children and, and 
reflecting on how they think and create and invent. Uh, and and um, and then I went on to work on uh, an edition of the last full novel for adults that she published in 1834, Helen, which is all about women um, and public life. Um, so, you know, that, that, that kind of work of editing Edgeworth uh, led me to see what uh, an amazing writer she was. Her work is really elusive. Um, so she often works through just naming a book or an author. Her, her characters will be talking about an author or a book um, or an idea. And sometimes she'll footnote to, to kind of get her readers to see where that idea comes from. So the books are inviting her readers to a kind of intellectual feast. Um, she is a novelist of ideas um, and that's, uh, that kind of prompted me to kind of work on her um, subsequently and to write quite a lot about different works of hers, works for children, works for adults. Um, and out of that comes the biography. Oh, that's that's great. And you just said that you worked on a lot of editions of her original work. Well, writing a political biography, I imagine, is different from that. Um, I could imagine it's quite difficult to be faced with the task of kind of condensing an entire political life into different chapters. So I think I, I have two questions about this. What were the challenges or what were the differences between editing original work and then writing a biography? Um, and how did you come about focusing on specific um, aspects of Edgeworth's life and, and um, which aspects are those? Well, I suppose that the um, the process of editing led me to see that Edgeworth was a very networked author um, and that she worked um, often in collaboration with others. And that didn't mean that she was a copyist um, or that she was derivative in any way, but she was really her imagination and her ideas were really sparked uh, by conversation and by contact with ideas um, through books. So both conversations with people that she met and lots of people flocked to Edgeworth Town to meet her. Um, and she traveled and, and spent time in, in Paris um, and Switzerland and other places. So she, and, and Edinburgh. Um, so she knew some of the Scottish Enlightenment figures. Dugald Stewart was a great family friend, for instance. So she traveled widely. Um, in England, Scotland and Europe. Um, and um, so th those those contacts uh, meant a lot to her and, and, and often people she met became correspondents. So she has a very lively um, kind of life in letters. Um, and that's a very rich source for a biographer. So I became aware that she had those direct contacts with people and also intellectual contacts through reading. And those are the kinds of contacts that you're tracing when you're editing. Um, when you're looking at the illusions, you're thinking about well, where does that come from? Um, does that is that just from a book or is it from somebody that she's actually working with personally? Um, and um, so tracing that kind of intellectual world um, that world of ideas um, is a crucial part of editing Edgeworth. Um, and that kind of really laid the foundation for 
understanding her life um, and um, led me to kind of want to know more about how she began and then how those relationships and friendships developed, which ones seemed to be most important and what was she doing behind the scenes that wasn't in the published work. So the published work is full of political um, ideas um, and it's really lively and really um, compelling because of that. But she also had a political life that isn't registered in public necessarily. Um, so those correspondences are often um, conversations in which she is uh, mooting projects that she's working on um, with other people. Etienne Dumont is one of those people that she works with from, um, well, 1806 when she, she's first in contact with him and she's, she remains friends with him um, right into the 1820s. Um, so she wanted to, she proposed working with him um, on a number of projects to, to publicise his ideas and to help him do that without necessarily putting her name to those uh, those uh, those writing projects. Similarly, she worked with her father, who was a reforming landlord. He was an educationalist. He was an inventor. Um, so she wrote a number of works which appear under his name. Um, and I'm, I'm, I was interested in sort of tracing that collaboration. That's a very central collaboration, but it's not the only one. And so she worked with, for instance, a woman called Mary Ledbetter, who wanted to look at um, customs, folklore, um, the kind of popular culture of Ireland. So she worked with her on a project and she she provided her, uh, Ledbetter with with material and wrote a preface to a work that they kind of, you know, co-authored, even though Edgeworth's name isn't on the title page. So um, I was really interested in, in kind of thinking about this kind of hidden uh, political or politicised life, all of these politicised activities that she was involved in, which were not necessarily out in the open. Um, so that's something that the biography has been able to explore. And then in terms of the aspects of her life, which I found most interesting, um, I've been particularly interested in reflecting on and tracing um, what it meant to have a political life as a woman. And that goes right back to a girl for Edgeworth, because at the age of 14, she's writing letters to a school friend in which she is thinking about industry in Ireland and how it's discouraged by low wages. So she's thinking about economics, about political economy. She's reading Adam Smith. She's reflecting on Smith and, and then applying that to her own observations and her own kind of evolution of a political philosophy. So she's kind of developing that political philosophy, those political interests from a very early age. And that continues right through her life. But she becomes kind of more open about it um, from the 18 teens onwards, um, when it becomes a bit more respectable for women to admit that they have those political interests. So she was really interested in women's education and in women's kind of outlets in public life and what women might do behind the scenes to actually have political agency. We see her exploring that. Um, then another subject that, has, that really interests me about her um, and that she's in, that she is engaged with um, from at least the late 1780s right through 
um, into the 1830s is the question of um, slavery, um, enslaved labor um, in the uh, British colonies um, and in America. Um, and the whole kind of question of empire and colonialism and how much that preoccupies her. And, and of course, she links that um, to Ireland, uh, where you also have what she recognised as a population who were largely subjected and oppressed by the social and political status quo. Um, so she does make connections between um, the way in which um, the Irish are seen by the English and uh, the ways in which uh, enslaved people in the British colonies and in America are, are seen. Um, so those connections uh, interest me very much. Um, and the whole kind of question of, of her seeing herself as a spokesperson for Ireland also interests me. Um, so that throughout her life, she was an adamant defender of Irish inventiveness, the kind of promise um, and capacity, creative capacity of ordinary Irish people. Um, and she was with her father an advocate for um, transforming the kind of social and political um, basis in Ireland to try to, uh, to uh, bring those voices much more into uh, and integrate them much more um, with um, the the establishments. Um, that's to, yeah. Um, that's that's a very wide range of interest. That's fantastic. So I take from that that kind of the thematic um, focus point is political life as a woman, um, slavery, and Ireland. <clears throat> Excuse me. While you also want to outline the centrality of collaborations for a political life during that period. How do these aspects um, translate into the book's outline? Could you give us a sense of the book's structure and how, how you managed to um, incorporate all these aspects in it? Yes, I mean, it, it's, I think it's one of the, the, the difficult things about biography is that, um, is trying to think about structure actually um, and you know this whole kind of whole question of whether a biography is linear um, and you know more or less traces a kind of chronological progress or the extent to which it can explore um, the ways in which that isn't really how one lives that isn't really how one experiences one's life um, you know we, we don't just live um, in the kind of present moment, we live in the past and we also live in the future in terms of the way we think and, and feel ourselves to exist. Um, so that kind of that question of structure has been a really vexed one, actually, and it's something I've really struggled with in the biography. Uh, and I think inevitably um, there will be themes that recur um, across the biography. So although I am broadly structuring it in chronological terms, I'm trying to kind of show how um, interwoven um, moments are in her life. 
Um, so I, th I think that the most helpful way I, I found of structuring it is thinking of um, certain kinds of themes um, and you know how they become more prominent at different points in the life. So the first part of the biography, I'm, I'm thinking about power. Um, I'm, I'm thinking about Edgeworth's own experience um, as a very young child of powerlessness and of the difficulty of acknowledging or, or openly um, openly displaying the kind of creative powers that she had as a girl because um, as a girl she was also being schooled in being amiable, agreeable and feminine. Um, so thinking about um, the experiences that she had as a very young writer and thinker I think are important in giving an insight into what she later develops um, in her writing which is that kind of awareness of the effects of inequality and power imbalances. Um, so um, I begin by kind of thinking about her primarily her beginnings um, in, in Edgeworth town uh, and her access to power or how she has to kind of um, be discreet about her appetite for power. Uh, and and then I go on to talk about some of the the first kind of the first kind of political encounters uh, the, the first encounters with a different kind of political atmosphere um, in Bristol. Um, she made a visit to Bristol, quite a long visit uh, between 1790 and, and 1793, and um, she encountered there a kind of a, a, a city which was really profiting from the slave trade and from the produce of enslaved labour. Um, and that prompted her to think um, about slavery um, for the first time. So I'm, I'm, that's where I introduce that idea. Um, but as I said, it's something that she continues to write and think about well into the 1830s. Um, and, uh, and I then kind of go on to think about in, in, so women's servitude within that. So I'm thinking about slavery in broad terms, not just in literal terms, but thinking about um, that kind of idea of Ireland as the Isle of Slaves, um, as, um, as it's often kind of spoken of in the 18th century. Um, so the beginnings of her thinking and publishing and writing about Ireland um, and Irish um, oppression um, and I then go on to um, Paris. Um, so that's the, the, the kind of the next one. Well, Brist Bristol and Ireland, I should say, um, in that kind of second section. And then it's it's Paris because she she visited Paris in um, 1802 to 1803. And although it was a very, very brief visit, it set up relationships that were extremely important to her for the next uh, 20 years um, or more. So it was there that she met Etienne Dumont for instance, for the first time. Um, and it enabled her to think about revolution, uh, about the effects of revolution, about, um, about um, the Bourbon kind of restoration. It, it influenced how she thought about um, European politics, really, for the next um, 20 years or more. Um, and then I kind of move into a kind of 
probably a kind of final phase where I am thinking about um, the O'Connell years, um, how Edgeworth responds to the changing political environment in Ireland. Um, and so that will take up the, the last part of life. You know, she doesn't actually publish a great deal um, for adults in the last 30 years of her life. So although she was writing continually, she actually didn't bring very much to completion in terms of her writing for adults. Although through the 1820s, she was writing um, uh, novels for young people. Um, so the last kind of uh, sort of 30 years are kind of quite problematic in, in kind of how to think of them. She was mostly in Ireland, but she was she was also traveling to Paris and to Switzerland. Um, so um, those kind of encounters really are perhaps less important in terms of being new encounters because they're, they're really more reinforcing networks and connections that she had already made earlier in her life. Um, so that's that's broadly the structure. I mean, it's not it's not kind of. Um, I think there's still I'm, I'm still evolving, uh, I suppose, the, the kind of finer parts of that structure. That's that's broadly how I've been thinking of it. I think this is an amazing kind of thematic interweaving of the different aspects um, you you talked about previously. Um, is it this thematic rather than really linear account of Edgeworth that makes your book different from pre previous account of Edgeworth's lives? I, I read that the book will be the first account of her life to be, appear in the last 45 years and um, that it kind of wants to offer a reassessment of her political and intellectual life. Um, so first of all, yes, is it the thematic rather than linear structuring of your book that differs or how does your book um, kind of differentiate from previous accounts and how did you go about a, a reassessment of somebody's life? That sounds quite, quite grand, yes. <laughs> yes, um, I mean, Edgeworth's life was really ripe for reassessment because um, one of the aspects of her reputation which have been quite which has been kind of quite troubled um, is the characterization of her as a conservative writer um, and i think that was particularly prevalent before the 12 volume uh, pickering and chateau edition of her work was published but there are still there's still there's still some there's still some kind of um uh debate, um, so still some, I think, negotiation to be done with that reputation. Um, so she was she was often thought of as rather limited, rather didactic, um, and in terms of Irish politics, um, not as progressive as I think she actually was. Um, so she was of the landlord class. Um, and I think one has to recognise that and recognise the limits that that creates for her in terms of thinking about restructuring of power in Ireland. Um, and it does, it does create some limits. Um, but, you know, in many ways, she's a much, much more um, open minded writer than she she was often thought of 
um, un until I think quite recently. Um, and um, I'd like to think of it, I, that my work's been part of the assessment that's already begun. Um, but what the biography, I think, will do um, that is different from Marilyn Butler's brilliant biography um, is that it will really kind of think about this kind of question of Edgeworth's power and agency um, in a different way. Um, and I'm really interested in seeing how effective her work was, how much of a public impact her work had um, beyond being something that would, you know, have a sort of impact on, on, on people in, in private life. So novels are often think, thought of as, you know, books that you enjoy within your own kind of domestic space, that they, they have a kind of sense of that um, relaxation of the mind in some ways um, and uh, the idea that they are um, rewarding um, and enjoyable but don't necessarily change anything in in public life and I think what what I have kind of uncovered looking at the letters in particular and seeing how much she was working with other people on projects that did have direct policy impacts um, I want to show that she actually did have a political life uh, that was much more um, uh, much more she, she did have a political life that was much more direct than has previously been recognized and that 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 the nature of that political life was more progressive than has often been understood is that um, something you're hoping your readers will take away from reading the book? Just before we go on to briefly talk about your um, other research project at the moment, what do you think is in the book that is particularly significant for the reader? I think what is particularly significant um, is actually um, recognizing how driven Edgeworth was uh, and how much there was this um, strong what she called public spirit and sense of general philanthropy um, motivating her her work um, so I hope that readers will come away thinking you know that she was really quite an extraordinary woman that she might not have been like Mary Wollstonecraft, who was very sort of out there campaigning and kind of, you know, throwing herself up against existing power structures, but that Edgeworth was trying to find ways to, um, to create impacts that would be long lasting, um, that would be kind of um, perhaps more gradually transformative, but deeply transformative. Great. Now, your next monograph after the Edgeworth biography is provisionally entitled Schools for Treason, Radical and Reformist Writing for Children in 1780 to 1825. How, how does this book connect to your work on Edgeworth before? And um, briefly, what will it be about? Well, it's really about 
a culture of inquiry that a number of writers were seeking to sustain um, throughout a period of uh, real repression of free speech and free publication. Um, and a lot of the writing that I'm going to be looking at, looking at was published um, in the 1790s, although my dates go back to 1780 and, and forward to 1825. Um, I'm thinking uh, really about that the impact um, of the French Revolution on uh, the public sphere in Britain and in particular on the world of print culture. Um, and lots of people have written about, of course, about um, what was going on in writing um, written for and by adults um, and that really kind of relates to the adult kind of public political scene. Um, but there hasn't been very much written about what some of these same writers were writing for children uh, and why they were doing that. So I look at writers like, for instance, William Godwin, Mary Wollstonecraft, um, Anna Barbold, um, and Mariah Edgeworth, actually, um, to see what they were doing in their writing for children or, and the writing about children um, that was designed to enable young readers to think, to inquire, um, and to be critical of, uh, of the world that surrounded them, the world in which they were growing up. Um, they're often referred to as uh, the rising generation. And it's that idea of this rising energy, this energy of young minds, um, that a lot of these writers are um, trying to stimulate. They're trying to encourage that, that inquiring, inventive energy. So the connection, I suppose, between this book and my biography is that Edgeworth did write uh, extensively for children and for what we'd now call young adults. In fact, in many ways, she invented the category of young adult writing. Um, so she wrote stories that were for very young children, but then as the children in the Edgeworth family grew up, she realised that she wanted to write stories that would appeal to teenagers uh, and then to, you know, um, young people in their late teenage years, you know, entering adulthood. So her, her writing for children kind of um, takes up this idea of the progressiveness of children's minds um, and applies it to... Uh, the kind of material that she was producing for them to, to work with and engage with and to think about. Um, you just highlighted the importance of writings for children and young adults for really the, the formation of minds um, in the future. Is this focus on um, children's literature and, and the, the influence and transformative power of children's literature. Is that something that you would like to um, see more of in the study of um, literary and intellectual history? Are you hoping to contribute to, um, to a greater sensitivity to this subject? Yes, um, there's, there's been some work done on this idea of the juvenile enlightenment. Um, so yes, that that's the, the kind of idea that I'm that I think is uh, I'd like to develop in the book, um, and that that sense of uh, an enlightened younger generation 
um, was something in which the writers of the time were, were kind of really sort of placing their hopes. And I think that, that the kind of importance of that work and, and how influential that early reading could be and how much it might help to stimulate and encourage um, a kind of a culture of inquiry, of enlightened inquiry. I think that's been under-recognised um, and we still tend to think of, you know, writing for children or young people as somehow unimportant or insignificant or maybe even embarrassing as a subject for serious contemplation and, you know, literary and, um, and kind of um, intellectual investigation. Whereas actually I think it's, it's a crucial period um, and it's, it's something which exerts a massive influence on someone's life, what they encounter, the ideas they encounter as, as a young person. Um, so that kind of sense of the formative um, and continuing influence of juvenile reading um, is, I think, something which I'd like to see um, kind of taken much more seriously. I think um, I will take these as some very fitting closing remarks um, about the importance of contemporary literary and intellectual historical research. Thank you, Susan, for being with me today. Um, this has been such an interesting, well, 40, 40 minutes approximately. And uh, thank you for giving us such an open and detailed insight into your work. Um, I hope to talk to you again next time. And until then. Thank you very much. Thank you.